Since 1992, our next guest has been one of the most powerful women in British journalism and one of the most influential in the world of fashion, which is why I really had major anxiety about what to wear. Um, and I was like, is the bow tie the, slightly the wrong side of pedo peewee Herman, or is it right? She said, it's okay, I can live. Um, as editor-in-chief of British Vogue, Alexander Shulman OBE has hit new circulation heights, achieving editorial and commercial success, and there's a festival coming up too. Um, she has taken a stand on size zero and racism in the industry, and would certainly not advocate pizzas without toppings or bases. A former Orange Prize judge, she is often spotted. She's one of the few people actually reading a book um, between uh, fashion shows. Tonight, she's going to unveil her sparkling debut novel, which I think is like Mary McCarthy's The Group. It reminded me a lot of that, of those relationships between women. Um, obviously in the group, um, it was the 1930s and 40s, this is the 80s, so it's like the group with rah-rah skirts and Dulce's pixie boots. Um, but anyway, it's 1983 and Sal, Annie and Kenja are asking, can we still be friends? Please welcome Alexandra Shulman. <laughs> First of all, I had no idea there were going to be so many of you. Um, if I could have run out, I would have by now. Um, secondly, first book, so first time I've ever read, so bear with me. Um, it's about Sal, Annie, and Kendra, but the um, yeah, read, uh leaves out Kendra. I felt that three different girls' voices was more than I could do. Um, Annie, at this point, has uh, just met uh, a man called Jackson who has sent her a um, basket of peaches with a note saying, can we have dinner sometime? And she spent the whole weekend worrying about whether he's going to ring and actually make the date. And Sal, who um, is a journalist, a very junior journalist on a Sunday paper, has... Um, spent the same weekend having a slightly disastrous evening um, with her boss. Uh, and um, the beginning bit is where uh, they meet at the end of the weekend. The front door of the flat banged and Flick the cat bolted out of the bathroom where she had been investigating the toilet bowl. Sal called Annie, hauling herself out of the water and wrapping herself in a towel. She walked into the hall where Sal stood, pale and tearful, with what looked like a nasty bruise under her eye. Her thin white dress was crumpled, and she was bereft of her usual bounce. What's happened? Annie let her towel fall to put an arm round the shaking frame of her friend and guide her to the sofa, where she stood beside her naked. Let me put something on, she said. It's okay, it's okay, I I'm just thick, said Sal, fumbling in her bag for a cigarette. So tell me, said Annie, now wrapped in a gown, tell me, what's happened? Sal recounted her evening, the boredom of the quiet Sunday, her excitement of being taken somewhere glamorous. I just thought it would be fun to go for a walk, and Stuart and I seemed to be having a great time. I guess I should have known right from the start. I mean, what was he doing round here anyway? I suppose I could have got away from him less violently. But Annie, I was frightened, I promise you, he was holding me so tight. Could have been rape. What wanker. Annie knew that attack was always Sal's chosen form of defence. 
tempered negotiation had no part in her makeup. It never had been, whether she was dealing with people or with inanimate objects. Another person would no doubt have been able to extricate themselves in a less combative manner, but then another person might not have found themselves walking drunk through Hyde Park with a married boss late at night. Sal's usual bravara had disappeared and tears had begun to streak her face, her nose red with crying. I don't know why they do it. I mean, can't they tell we're not interested, these men? I'm so pleased you're here. I just feel terrible. How could I be so stupid? And what am I going to do about work? I don't want anyone to know. Annie gave her a hug, wrapping the small bony frame. Sal could smell her friend's bath essence. You'll be okay. You know what? I don't think he's going to want anyone to know about this either. He was just drunk too. Keep your head down. But only the other day, Doug was telling me about how it's always the girls who get fired. This kind of thing happens all the time, Sal wailed. You won't get fired. Trust me. Come on, let me tuck you up. Annie spoke from a position of total ignorance. But if she or Sal were to get any sleep tonight... Sal had to feel secure about her job. Sal Turner, Sunday Herald, that was who she was. It was not, she decided, the right time to ask Sal if Jackson had called, nor even to mention that she'd met him. She'd have to wait now till morning when Sal would hopefully be feeling better. Annie's good news would not gain the response she felt it deserved from her friend in this current state of mind. She wanted to present it in all its glory uncontaminated by one of Sal's messes. As Annie surveyed her options, she could hear her mother's voice with its faintly nasal cadence as if the surface had been ever so slightly scratched. There's a bit of a time jump here. Darling, I always think the blue's your colour. I regard myself as a pink person, but you're definitely a blue girl. Pink does you no favours. Hanging on the open door of the Bolton wardrobe was a bright blue dress threaded with silver strands, the deep V of the neck leading to a high waist, and it was Annie's lucky dress. She'd found it on a crowded rail in a Christian aid shop a year ago when she had seen the silver glinting and pulled it out to discover a dress that fitted perfectly. She always felt the better for wearing it. She couldn't remember a time when it had not exerted its lucky charm but perhaps putting herself in the hands of such superstition would be tempting fate tonight. By the time Jackson contacted Annie, she was convinced he would never call. The morning after the Stuart debacle, Sal had woken early and quickly restored by the night's sleep and several mugs of coffee, she'd shared Annie's news about meeting Jackson with exactly the right amount of enthusiasm even attempting to eat one of the overripe peaches that sat in their basket on the table. So, how old is he, do you think? I don't know. Working it out from what Tanya told me, I guess maybe 30, something like that. Much older than us, anyway. But he's amazing looking. You'd probably say he was too good looking. At university, the girls had spent many an hour debating the appearance of each other's admirers, concluding that there was something suspicious about textbook good looks particularly after Annie had suffered an unfortunate one-night stand with a chisel-jawed boy blessed with the looks of a plastic metal doll. You know how I love men's forearms, Annie continued, conjuring up her memory of Jackson. He had the best, long and tanned. Sal received this information with an amused grin. 
I thought it was the hands that counted. Did you check them out? Don't be gross. Annie got up and walked over to the telephone, lifting the receiver to hear the dial tone and then replacing it. It's working. Sal tilted her chair back against the wall, tapping into one of Annie's large shell ashtrays. Otherwise, how would Stuart have rung? Jackson didn't call while I was here yesterday, Annie, but he will. I promise you, he's obviously obsessed. It was one of Sal's winning qualities as a friend that she could be relied upon to look at any situation optimistically, always convinced that anything any of them would or could do was right. If plans were thwarted, it was always because of the actions of someone else. The fault was never theirs. Her loyalty was unquestioning. And she was right. He did call. That morning at work, everybody was seated at their desks and the phones were permanently ringing. There was a bit of a crisis on, Lee informed Annie, as soon as she got in. Kremlin, a new vodka bar off Sloan Square, was holding its opening party the same night as their event for Chelsea Bridge. Keep your distance from the Fuhrer this morning. She's in a right pickle, Lee had hissed over the desk at Annie. <coughs> Crazy idiot. We've had the date down on the restaurant register for at least two months. What does he want to go head to head for? Tanya announced to the room, her palazzo pants flapping as she stomped around. She picked up the phone on Lee's desk to call Mark Fitzherbert, the restaurant PR and near certifiable alcoholic who handled many of London's big launches and was masterminding the Kremlin bash. Fitz, you and I go way back. We've got to work together on this, darling. Tanya began. It's just not an option for both to open the same evening. Her eyes rolled wildly in a performance for her listening staff, silenced in anticipation of the outcome. Yes, well, so have we lined up a great guest list. Of course we have fits. What do you think I am? Didn't fall off the back of the turnip truck yesterday. I've had the whole shebang in place for months now. We listed the date in the restaurant register don't your people tell you anything? Cradling the phone in her neck, she pulled a cigarette from a packet on the desk, lit it and took a deep drag. You don't sound good, Fitz. Bit early for a drink, love, isn't it? Maybe that's what's clouding your judgment. But Tanya knew she'd lost this round. She slammed the phone down. He always was a rotten lay, she informed the room. <laughs> so who's his special guest then? Any of you lot know? I pay you to be the eyes and ears, so I hope you're not deaf, blind, and dumb. Brian Ferry, maybe? Lee offered cautiously, aware that by handing over this tidbit, he was putting his head above the parapet. Brian Ferry? Christ, where did you hear that? Someone mentioned it at Slummit in Style last night, but didn't know it was going to clash with us. Lee could feel the sympathetic eyes of the others on him. When Tanya was like this, they'd learnt it was wise to keep quiet. Even so, if Fitzherbert really had got ferry, they were going to be under pressure to trump that, and it was only weeks away. Lord help me. Now I'm getting my feedback from Slummit in style. Maybe that's why you've had a bit of a style bypass today. Tanya tossed back, leaning over Lee. He could see the line of foundation that had gathered around the joint of her nose the small clots of mascara at the end of her lashes. She could be a right bitch sometimes. Yet despite knowing that her last comment was a missile she could have hurled anywhere, Lee suddenly worried that possibly it was true. 
his T-shirt might be ripped in some of the wrong places. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've heard the words Sloan Square mentioned in this room. Um, and, and it's interesting to note that palazzo pants are period detail um, as well. Um, it, it was fascinating reading this book. I'm, I'm writing a memoir just now set in the 80s, a very different 80s from, from your 80s. Um, and I was thinking about Sal and her experiences of being a journalist starting out. Um, what were, you know, the, she experiences a lot of sexism. She, you know, the Harrods bombing happens and she's told to go and find a bit of colour. Um, and the women who are in the office with her are very competitive. What was your experience like starting when you left Sussex? Well, I mainly worked in glossy magazines, not in newspapers, and um, mainly worked with women. And I didn't really experience many of those things. I mean... <coughs> I guess I worked for a year and a half on the Sunday Telegraph, and um, I didn't experience sexism there, uh, but I did... At all, ever? No, but I'm not very good at recognising sexism, it has to be said. There, there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, go on. No, no, so, so, I, I just don't think... Um, I think it was a very male culture, and I was in the minority as a woman there, but I didn't find it very uncomfortable or different, and I didn't have a problem with it. But I knew that it was something that people did feel, so I've put some of that in the book. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's very difficult, the choices that the women who work in, on the newspaper that she's on kind of have to, to make. You know, They bring their, their shopping to work for their families, they hide it under the tables. Um, and I, I think that's a, a brilliant detail, and I think that the book is very strong on detail. There are lots of moments like the foundation by the nose, which are just kind of kind of crushing. I mean, they do feel they do feel like observations. And I know that you grew up in a, a journalistic family. And I wonder if you kind of heard, growing up, those kinds of stories of of the newsroom of you know your dad at the Evening Standard, your mum at the Express, that kind of thing. Um, I went to the newsroom at the Evening Standard once, which is what I used. Um, to help me with the newsroom here because actually when I worked on newspapers we'd moved to Docklands and this newspaper is not this newspaper is yeah. pre the Docklands yeah but still they're, they're still kind of they're lamenting the loss Street. of Fleet Street yeah, or, or yeah. the imminent or loss the of the imminent it. loss yes exactly so um, mm, I don't know you know as a child you don't listen to your parents I mean I guess it kind of was rumbling around but I don't have any conscious memories of stories particularly um, and what prompted you to write this novel at, at, at this point in your life? Mm, good question. Apart from Juliet, your publisher, sitting in the front <laughs> row. Um, well, I'd always meant to write a novel, and I'd always thought that um, I'd do it when I left Vogue, and then I've been at Vogue for 20 years, so I sort of thought time is marching on, and if you're going to try and do it, uh, you should get a move on, you know, otherwise you might be dead before you can write this book. <laughs> and so the idea to write a book came before the idea for the book. And, um, yeah. So, was, so, so, so kind of part of the identity of being a novelist was attractive to you? I can't really say I feel like a novelist. I feel like a fraud. I feel like I'm editor of Vogue, and this is the first time I've done anything 
as being a novelist. So it's a very new, um, new experience for me. And one of the things I'm finding very interesting is that I'm very used to talking about Vogue and very used to talking about the work that we do as a team. But I find it very difficult talking about something that I've done on my own. But actually, it's probably the, the, was the main motivation for doing it was to actually have something that was, for better or worse, was something that I'd done and not something that was me kind of orchestrating other people to be able to do. So, yes, yeah, so it's all you. And it's these all conversations me. are all going to be all about you. Yeah. Um, so how did you find the time for yourself doing that? Because clearly it's not... You know, it's not exactly a slack ship over there in Hanover <laughs> Square. Um, so, uh, you know, how and when did you, did you do it in the office? Did you? No, no, I, am the I made a rule do? never to do it in the office uh, because it's I wanted that kind of separation. <laughs> um, I did it uh, on weekends and holidays and uh, early mornings. I've got a son, and so I would be up for him by seven, so I worked out if I got up at half past five, then I'd have an hour and a half with a lot of coffee that I could do something then. And actually, I quite like working in the morning, so... But I was quite uh, disciplined about it, and... So how long did it take? year and a half, something like that. Yeah. I'm looking again at the publisher who's going, yes, that's true, yes, <laughs> that's not a lie. Um, and so I, I, I think... You know, in terms of the two sort of cycles of things, the, nov the novel is a bigger piece of work that you're in contact with for a longer time, whereas the magazine is mm. something that comes out every month and it's sort of repetitive. Fish and chips, yeah, yeah, after that, yeah. I don't know anyone that eats fish and chips <laughs> out of Vogue. Um, <laughs> I know some quite fancy people, but, um, but, 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 but I know what you mean. Is that, and who was wh the woman who wrote International Velvet? Her name escapes me. She Enid, said that Enid Bagnall. Enid Bagnall said that, that journalism was the, dra the dragon that chased its own tail. Um, and I wonder if you, part, you know, part of the reason for writing a novel is a relief, right? It's a kind of a chance to spend more time with those characters, more time with yourself. Um, <clears throat> not a chance to spend more time with myself, definitely. Um, I think it was, uh, there were things I wanted, I was interested in. I was I'm interested in female friendship. I've always had very good friends and I wanted to write something about how even though you're f you, you've got good friends, it can be complicated. Things aren't always simple and straightforward. Um, and I guess I wanted to write a bit about parents and daughters. So those were, those were things. But, um, but the, 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 let's explore the parents and daughters mm. thing, because I mean, the ones we experience most, I, get, I think we're most interested in the book are the Roots Deans. And mm. um, we, we hear most about, about Kendra and she, um, she is um, the kind of tie-dye headscarf who wants to be a social worker and do some good in the world. And her parents have jobs that she thinks are not, not worthless, but she just she wants to do something, you know, something bigger. What, what was the interest for you there and her? Um, well, I was actually interested in the parents, I guess, and that you know this this idea of a couple who have this sort of this perfect life that they've got and they have this daughter who just doesn't really like their life and they can't really understand why it is that they've got this sort of perfect existence and why all the way along she's she's thwarted them um but she then, refuses to be perfect doesn't she well yeah but then she realizes when she kind of leaves them that actually it wasn't quite that way the way she always thought it was with them and i think that's the thing you know what was uh odd about writing this book is I've written it from 
the point of view of uh, sort of 24, 25-year-olds, but actually I'm more the age of the parents. So I sort of, I found myself in a strange position of um, both identifying with the, with the daughters, but also realizing that I was sometimes the parent doing the annoying things that parents do. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I mean, the, the, the Roots teens are definitely annoying parents. They say, uh, you know, I get the sense, particularly the mother with her modely Annie face, who, you know, who wants her daughter to do something that's more worthwhile than social work. And then, of course, her daughter ends up becoming a lesbian, um, which could be interesting, but she doesn't choose an interesting girlfriend, which is why she doesn't object to the lesbianism. She objects to the choice of girlfriend, um, which, which I think is interesting. So how did you find it, just going back to the, the process of, of writing it, how did you find switching between that journalistic gear and, and the novel gear? Was the one that you were more attracted to than the other? Did you think, oh, I'd rather not go in today. I just want to stay and do this. Uh, Yes, yes, and then there were days when I thought I'd rather be in the office not trying to, to write this book. Um, it was a sort of, you know, whichever. Sometimes one came easier than the other, but um, no, I was surprised myself by how much I enjoyed writing it and that lovely feeling that you get of being in another world. Um, and even though, um, unlike Chris, my world, the world I'm writing about is a world very familiar to me and makes no attempt. It was actually deliberately written not to be about anything that was unfamiliar. I was interested in writing about the familiar. Um, it's still a kind of escape from yourself writing fiction and it was a wonderful way when things were difficult in some way or other to sit down and just go like into their world. Are you going to be doing another one? Oh, I don't know yet. <laughs> yes, says her publisher. How this one row. goes. I'll take a question, Sylvia, of course. We've kind of touched on this already, but I, su I suppose, you know, the characters re in, in reading the novel in some senses are a refraction um, and a jumping off point, that, you know, they become other people that aren't you. But how much of you is in any of those characters is the question. Um, there's a bit of me in all of them, but the one I'm probably the least like is Sal, the journalist. I have the kind of stolidity um, and dependability of Kendra and the ability to sort of be slightly angsty and worried about everything. And I have the kind of Annie's craving for domesticity and a nice love life and everything. Sal's much wilder, is more the kind of the free spirit that I would have liked to have been, but I'm not. Let's have a question here. a really good question. Um, are there aspects of female friendships, you know, friendships between groups of women that you felt weren't depicted or that you wanted to particularly focus on? Um, to be honest, not, not really, because although I used friendship as the kind of spine of the book, the more I wrote it, the more I think it became about other things other than friendship. I mean, the only thing I, I kind of did want to talk about was how you can be irritated with your friends, like they're your best friends, but they can be so annoying. Um, and, um, you know, I, I have very close friends and we spend most of the time talking about how annoying whichever one of us isn't there at that moment. Um, 
so I, I kind of wanted to put that in the book. But in fact, in, in the end, I think the period became a very dominating thing in the book. And this thing about the sort of the different generations um, a different thing. But Annie's mother isn't, uh, she's not particularly liberal, Letty. She's the one that, you know, she can't understand what the miners' strike is about. And, and she thinks Mrs. Thatcher's a good Mrs. thing. Mrs. Thatcher, yeah. Um, I think I think it's really interesting the way the eighties does become a character. I mean, your your eighties, not my eighties, but things like you know, where where they're picking up the phone to see if somebody else is wrong, mm. um, and then there's a conversation about well maybe you should get one of those mobile phones, um, and um, and it, you know it doesn't feel forced. I really like that it's 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 happening. You know, history's happening as Chris was saying. It's a kind of that five year that five year gap. Thank you, Alexander Shulman and Chris Cleaver. We're going to take a fifteen minute interval. We'll be back.